Well, I am very aware that the last couple weeks we've gone through our passage together and it's taken us about an hour. That doesn't seem like a very good thank you to those who are in the back doing children's ministry. So the good news is we have five verses to look at and to study together. So if you divide five into 60, I've got about 12 minutes of verse. So we should be doing well. I am grateful, really, for... um, uh, it, it's interesting on a Sunday, I'll usually go back, kind of watch the video, take a peek at the timestamp on the video when we start the message and the timestamp at the end, and I've had to scroll a lot further through the YouTube video lately. But thank you guys for your attention to God's Word. Thank you for bearing with sometimes a long-winded preacher, uh, for always bearing with a long-winded preacher, but thank you for the fact that you guys are eager to understand what God has to say. And I recognize, as we look at a passage like this, the reason that it's going to make a bit of a ripple for us who don't always think the same way is because of the group of people that come to ask the question to Jesus in the first place. They do not think the same way. Pharisees and Herodians were not friends. They were not people who were normal allies And yet we've seen them come together before. In Mark chapter 3, verse 1, here's what we read right out of the gate. He said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around them, the one with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored. You remember the moment, right? He was there at a synagogue on the Sabbath, and there was a question because this man was in trouble. Jesus could do good, but it was the Sabbath. Should he do good? And so he recognized the fact that he was under the microscope. He dove right into the controversy, healed the man, upset the leaders. And what happened to the end? It says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. And if you're reading this with a first century awareness of what's going on, you should really have either an exclamation point or a question mark kind of popping up, you know, like a comic strip above your head as you read that the Pharisees are going and trying to figure out what to do with the Herodians. They're getting desperate, and it's only chapter three. Here we are now, nine chapters later, and these strange bedfellows have come back together again to unite themselves against Jesus. And the question is why? Well, if you've been with us a little while, you know that at the beginning of chapter 11, it's kind of really 11 and 12 are sort of just Jesus comes to church is kind of what we see. His arrival at the beginning of chapter 11 into Jerusalem wasn't ultimately a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's not really Mark's focus, has it been? He goes into Jerusalem, and at the end of the triumphal entry, it says he goes into the temple, walks around for a little bit, and then leaves. Comes back, sees the fig tree, curses a fruitless but sort of apparently fruitful fig tree, and then we realize that was just a parable for what was going on in the temple. Lots of activity and absolutely no fruit, especially for the poorest and most needy. They were the ones being set aside. They were the ones who were really being insulted by the business of the temple. Jesus cleanses the temple. We see that what happened to the fig tree is ultimately in the process of happening to the temple. And then the Sadducees come back and say, hey, what business is it of yours how we run things here? This is our realm. But it's not just the Sadducees, sort of the temple keepers. It's representatives from the entire group, the Sanhedrin, the ruling authorities over all the business of Jerusalem. 
the law, the temple, the relationship to Rome? How in the world should you, you know, kind of come together? And that was a loosely held group. These folks all didn't think the same way. We're going to find out more and more about that because really this is the first group of people that come back after Jesus told the parable last week. You remember the parable? Guy has a vineyard. He does everything to make the vineyard successful and to make the tenants successful. He gives them everything they need and he just asks that they send some produce whenever they're done being productive. But instead, they rebel, they claim ownership, they beat and kill servants, they ultimately beat and kill the son. And Jesus tells this story after having cursed a fig tree. So we see the connection between the vineyard, everything that's growing, and what's going on in the temple. In other words, Jesus is just kind of, you could almost say that Mark 11 is the triumphal entry into the temple. It's just Jesus coming to church. And the question they asked is, who gave you the right to do this? And Jesus' ultimate answer in the parable is, well, the guy who owns the place gave me authority to do this. So what we have today is the first of the questions that's designed to set up Jesus to fail by the end of the week. They're trying to gain evidence against Jesus so that they can do something. They don't know how this week's going to end. Jesus does. He's already told his disciples three times. We're going to Jerusalem, not for my coronation, but for my death. We're going not so that I'd be honored, but so I'd be shamed. That's what's going to happen. And there's a blessing for everyone who follows God into that kind of a kingdom. We've had to wrestle ourselves with whether or not we're willing to walk this path Jesus is making available for us. But that's where Jesus is going. He's coming into Jerusalem primarily to go to church. And in the process, he's unsettling all the church and synagogue, or sorry, the temple leaders. And so the question really is, does Jesus have the authority to do it? And ultimately, the first trap kind of question that they set up for Jesus is answering a little bit more what it means for God to have ultimate ownership. Because what we see ultimately is kind of linked in what Sinclair Ferguson said this idea that, that strange enemies would come together in you know, a, a union against Jesus isn't new. He said this was not a phenomenon limited to the first century. In every age, indeed in the experience of every Christian, the time comes when opposites will be united in opposition to the gospel. What a line that was. Opposites united in opposition. That was the phrase that just kind of grabbed me as I read that. And we see a lot of that happening today. There is, in the declaration of the kingdom of God, something that isn't just new with Jesus, it's pointed with Jesus, but it's happened all the way back in the days of Daniel. If you remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, it really bothered him. Now, afterward, he decided to reject the entire dream altogether and make a big statue of gold, probably of him, and make everybody bow down to it. But if you remember the dream before that, it was a statue that was made of a bunch of different metals. Each one started really weak. Gold isn't a strong metal, but it's very shiny. And there was a statue that had a head made of gold. The metals became less glorious And kind of what seemed to be more strong until you got down to the feet where clay was kind of added into the mix. But Nebuchadnezzar is massively troubled by this dream. 
It's not just the fact of the dream, which Daniel ultimately said means that you're not the whole statue of Nebuchadnezzar. You're just one part of it. And other kingdoms will come after you. They'll be less glorious, probably more militarily powerful. And ultimately, though, the thing that really messed with Nebuchadnezzar was the fact that that statue gets busted up by a stone that just comes down. It's basically a boulder. Nobody's touched it. Nobody's chiseled it. Nobody's shaped it. But it comes down and basically destroys the entire thing. Why? Because the kingdom of God doesn't play by the rules of the kingdoms of men. That's the way things always are. And everybody in that statue, whether they would be enemies, they're all part of the same statue. And they don't like the fact that the claims of the kingdom of God will trump any claim that they make. Therefore, opposites will be united in opposition to the gospel. The struggle for the survival of self-centered living will always see to that. Well said, Sinclair. Here's what we're going to see, though, as we dive into Mark. As we look at verse 13, we're going to see that this initial question kind of masks an animosity that we've already kind of touched on. The thing that Jesus uses as an object lesson is a coin that kind of points to sort of an unrightly claimed divinity. And ultimately then Jesus' answer, I was talking with Jonah about this a little bit uh, yesterday, uh, two days ago. It's, it's ultimately very dissatisfying because Jesus is being asked a question that is designed to trap him. And strangely enough, like a good politician, he answers very vaguely. And this is where, once again, I think as a church, we're probably kind of frustrated with Mark. Because Mark has absolutely no bones of presenting things to us and saying, got any questions? Tough. Let's move on. When we're going to get done with this, I think we're going to have to embrace some of the ambiguity in Jesus' answer. But the good news is we've got the rest of the Bible to help us a little bit too. So let's kind of dive in, aware of the kids back in children's ministry and trying to move on here. So with that... Verse 13, or sorry, verse 12. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable, which parable? The parable of the tenants, against them. So they left him and went away. That was the end of our last sermon, but it is deeply connected in what Mark is saying happens next. And so they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true. They got that right. Teacher, we know that you do not care about anyone's opinion. They got that right. Teacher, we know that you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They got that right. They didn't mean any of it, but they have absolutely been 100% right to date, which is helpful just as an aside to remember that many times observations the world makes can be spot on, but a heart that makes those observations can be running away from God the whole time. Everything they see about Jesus, everything they see in Jesus is entirely true. But here comes the question. And it's not a sincere question. It is, in fact, a question that masks an animosity. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, the interesting thing is, Samuel had to deal with a problem like this a long time ago 
in Israel's history. Remember, Samuel has been called the first of the kings and the last of the judges. The judges were the folks that came out after Moses had led everybody out of Egypt, but he wasn't going to lead them into the, in the promised land. Joshua was going to take them from the wilderness and into the promised land. And by the time he was done, he gave them a series of warnings. And the main one was this. Worship God, don't worship anyone else. Please, please, please worship God and don't worship anyone else. Idols, reject them. When your nations around you want to lead you astray, ignore them. Please worship God and nobody else. Guess what they do? They don't worship God. They worship everybody else. They follow and they listen to all the nations around them and they embrace all their idols. And so the book of Judges tells us the story of the consequences. And all throughout, it says, there's no king in Israel. Everybody does what he sees fit. There's no king in Israel. Everybody does what's right in his own eyes. And by the end of it, things are a mess. The whole book of Judges is kind of like just the process of kind of the toilet being flushed. And by the time you're done, everything's in the sewer. And you're like, this is a mess. Enter Samuel, the last of the Judges. Not in a military way, but in the sense that he's really holding sway over Israel. And he's, he's seen to be a delegate, kind of the, the fallen house of Eli, the priest, and his sons that are corrupt. Samuel steps into that place, and he's ready to lead. And what he's trying to do is get people back to God, but they don't want anything to do with it. See, when they read the book of Judges, and they think about their history, they don't see a problem with the fact that they've been doing what's right in their own eyes. Their problem is, we didn't have a king. That's what we needed. And so they come and they demand a king. And so Samuel says, God, this is not going to work out. And God's like, nah, give them what they want. Just tell them what it's going to be like. Here's what it's going to be like, he says. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king from him. Just so you know, this is not Mark 1. We're nothing but a well-oiled machine around here. So he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. So you want a king? Here's what he's going to do. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. And that is not the way it's going to end. He's going to take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And that day you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves. What has God done for Israel up to this point? Give, give, give. Sometimes give them the due of their rebellion, but often give them salvation. They got into the land and he gave them everything. Fields that they didn't plant. Houses that they didn't build. He gave them what they needed when they were in the wilderness. He gave them food that fell out of the sky and all they had to do was pick it up on the right days. So little we had to do. What is God taking from his people? Nothing. What's he doing? He's giving everything. You want a king? He won't be like me. I give, he'll take. That has been Israel's experience from the beginning. And when the kings of Israel served God, they understood big king, little king. He's like the sovereign. I'm like the delegated prince. He's 
Doran the third, I'm Doran the fourth, if you want to go Rings of Power, and you've been following along with that right now. He has delegated authority, and when he remembers that, everything works out well. But when he doesn't, this is what it turns into. When the little king thinks he is the sovereign over it all, things get so messed up. And so this question, is it lawful, coming back to Mark 12, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It ignores another significant step in Israel's history. Remember, they've had a king for a little while. David, Saul was the one that Samuel appointed. That did not work out well (laughs) at all. David, though, who God then brought in, who he said, has my heart. Even David taxed the people pretty significantly. And after David, his son Solomon, he traded and became wealthy, but he also became wealthy at the expense of the people. There was a temple tax. There was a palace tax. Even the temple, when it was finally completed, though David wanted to, he raised all this money and people were excited about it. But by the time Solomon died, the main question that came to, the, to his heir, to Rehoboam, was, you've been taxing us a lot for a while. It's really feeling heavy. And Rehoboam, if you remember, said, you don't like my dad's whips? That's okay. I'll attach scorpions to the whips, and that's what it's going to be like for me. You thought my dad's thigh was powerful when his boots stepped down on you? My pinky's as powerful as my dad. You want it to get better? It's going to get worse. That was a really bad move on Rehoboam's part. Why? People don't like being taxed. And this is for things that are in line with the kingdom of God at this point in Israel's history. They don't even ask the question, should we keep paying the temple tax? Right? That was the whole business Jesus just cleansed a day ago. What's happening here is should we be paying taxes not to any of the judges, not to any of our kings, not even to the puppet kings that sometimes the enemies would send up whenever the monarchy in Israel and Judah got weaker and weaker and weaker? There's nobody leading Israel. It's Caesar. Caesar is the authority. And so this question is designed to anger one of the two groups. The Pharisees want to hear no. You shouldn't. But they don't just want to be the only ones there. They wanted to bring the Herodians along. Because if Jesus says no, the Herodians are going to go back and tell Caesar that Jesus is trying to instigate a political uprising. But if he says yes, then the Pharisees are ready to be angry, and Jesus is in a really tough spot, which is why we say this isn't a real question. It's a question just masking an animosity, trying to trap Jesus, and it's trying to deal with what are really centuries of real trouble, not just about Israel's taxes to Israel's governors, but all those like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and now the Romans that have been asking for things from Israel while not giving them sovereignty over their own lands, the lands they came into in the first place. Rome is ruling. Rome is taxing. So what do you do? Well, Jesus asks for a coin. So he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why put me to the test? Not, by the way, a phrase that's ever used well in Scripture. Anybody ever putting God to the test is never the hero of the story. They're never on the side of the hero in the story. And so Jesus is drawing simple lines. You are putting me to the test, but 
Bring me a denarius, a coin that you'd get for working a day. A coin that since 6 AD has been the tax that had to be paid to the Romans. In other words, he's kind of saying, bring me your IRS form. Bring me what it would cost for you to pay this tax. Show me the coin. And so they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. James Edwards had a really interesting point. He said this, there's some irony in the fact that the inquirers possess the requisite coin for the tax, whereas Jesus does not. I love that. I love that point kind of in there, right? We're supposed to pay these taxes. I don't know. Anybody got the coin that you use to pay taxes? Yeah, we've got them. In that that moment, doesn't something kind of come out as odd to you, right? His point is, this suggests that they apparently share more complicity in the tax system than their question suggests. It's implied. It's suggested. But it is a little bit ironic, as, as James seems to point out to us. Now, there were three coins that, that could be this denarius, all right? There are a few different ones. The first one that you see there is from a guy that we all know and love, Julius Caesar. He career ended so very well. Um, that... That is not the Caesar that Jesus is talking about right now. It is probably the most popular Caesar, but these coins probably wouldn't be around right now. Not at the time when Jesus was around. So Julius Caesar didn't have a son, kind of adopted in a guy. He was known as Caesar Augustus, and this would have been his denarius. It's possible that this is the one. It's possible this was the denarius. And if you read this uh, you know, there's a Caesar on there. You see his face, but you also see some, some writing around there. And essentially, if it was his denarius, it would have essentially said he is the divine Augustus. He took the family name and, uh, and just kind of added this title of divinity to it. There was a transition, though, before this conversation would have taken place from Caesar Augustus to Tiberius, who, much like, uh, you know, Julius Caesar didn't have a kid, uh, Caesar Augustus didn't have a kid either, and so it kind of brought in Tiberius as an adopted heir. This one makes less of an individual claim to divinity, but it still references it in that it says, I'm the son of the divine Augustus. Either one, the second denarius or the third denarius, depending on kind of which coins were circulating at the time, These are the ones that ultimately were getting traded for the right type of coin whenever, so this would be the kind of Roman coin, but the temple wasn't going to receive a Roman coin, but the temple was more than happy to, you know, have their little Mac machine going. You give me this and I'll give you that. So this is the kind of coin that would have been received, which is probably why one of them had it available to them right there. But either way, The coin makes a claim. Augustus is divine. The Caesar is God. Now, if you know your Greek history, you know your Roman history, you know there's a bunch of gods. We're not talking about God the way the Jews would speak of God. But still, God had quite a, you know, quite a little bit of clout. To be able to claim that you weren't a more mere human, you weren't just a mortal, but you, you were able to sort of take up your place in the pantheon of gods, to be one of those who held sway and one of those, more importantly, who deserved worship and 
deserved allegiance. That was a significant claim. So when Jesus asks and says, whose likeness and inscription is this? Then Jesus is drawing our attention to one of the things that seems most significant and to the other thing that seems most significant. The picture on the coin and the statement on the coin. Whose likeness? Whose inscription? Whose face is stamped into this? And what does that say? They're pretty clear. It says that Caesar owns the coin and that Caesar is God. And that should lead any of us in so many different directions. Jesus, though, aware he's being trapped, ultimately moves us to an answer that is going to leave us a little frustrated. It's an answer that favors some ambiguity. And so in verse 17, Jesus said to them, well then, render to Caesar, give Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now this this sense of God having one kind of objective and the world having another kind of objective. This isn't the first time we've heard it, especially not recently in Mark. Remember one of the first times Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem. And when we get there, it's not going to lead to me being honored, but to me being dishonored. It's not going to lead to me being enthroned, but to me being killed. When he said that to Peter, Mark 8 reads this way. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I, I loved the irony of that moment when we were looking at this text. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Listen to the contrast. For you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus has absolutely no problem making a break between the claims that this world makes over our lives and the claims that God makes over our lives. When he's talking to his disciples and he's saying, the way that we're going to walk, this being our path, is going to lead to my death, my suffering, and by implication, yours as well. Peter obviously doesn't want that. Peter's only asking what would be natural for any one of us to ask. I would like to have a comfortable life. Can't I just have a comfortable life? And Jesus essentially says, that desire for a comfortable life, that is worldly and satanic. That's what challenged us that morning whenever we looked at this text. Because all of us would think, I told you a little bit, we've had some family moments for us lately. Big things that have happened. Moments that feel like success and moving ahead and making my kids' lives more comfortable. What dad doesn't want that? What American doesn't want a greater, more comfortable, more successful life? And Jesus said, well, it's quite possible that there is an earthly and satanic impulse underneath that. If that is your greatest allegiance is to your own comfort and to your own safety, then that actually doesn't go in line with God's kingdom. It opposes it. It's that same energy that I think kind of resonates in Jesus' answer in verse 17. Listen to verse 17 again. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Your mind on the things of man. 
and to God the things that are God, your mind on the things of God. It's ultimately this question, though, that when we kind of come back to it, look at the way that Jesus sort of said this again in verse 16. They brought one. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Listen to James Edwards again. He said that ultimate authority resided with God is clearly implied in Jesus' use of the word image or likeness here in verse 16. This is the same word that's used in Genesis 1.26 on humanity's creation in God's image. Here's the blunt point. If coins bear Caesar's image, then they belong to Caesar. But humanity, which bears God's image, belongs to God. That's Jesus' point. So where this is going to leave us is to some questions, right? Because what we really have to ask coming out of it, embracing the ambiguity Mark gives us, John, no problem. If we're reading this in John, he'd give us paragraphs of commentary to the point that you don't even know when Jesus stops talking and John starts talking. He just doesn't mind. He's like, man, this is amazing stuff. Jesus said this. They did this. Light and dark and oh my goodness, love. And isn't this just amazing? You're reading with Mark or John and you're like, tell me more, tell me more. He's like, okay, I'll tell you more. And Mark's like, here's what Jesus said. Let's move on. Mark, come on, dude. I need more right now, right? You're telling me I got to give Caesar what's Caesar? And you got to tell me I got to give God what's God's? How do I do this? Yep, moving on. (laughs) Mark. Well, here's the first question, right? What belongs to God? Or the corollary question is what doesn't belong to Caesar? Now, any verses coming to mind? Favorite moment. For those of you not with us, over all the years, Keith was giving our, our offertory one time. He was collecting the tithes and the offerings. And Keith, what was your line, brother? Yes, God owns the camels on a thousand hills. And I, we were like, he does, doesn't he? That's a good point. And it was deliberate. You know, Keith knew what he was setting us up for. Because we knew it was cattle on a thousand hills, but Keith wanted to push the point. He wanted to drive the point home and say, it's not just the cattle on those hills. Should camels take up residence on those hills, he would own them. If you build a house on those hills, he would own it. Anything that hill touches belongs to God. And which hills don't belong to God? Mm, Good question again. If I make my bed in the depths of Sheol, you're there. If I ascend all the way to the heavens, you are there. Is there anywhere you don't see me? No. Why? Because every land is yours. You know how I know that? Because in the Lord of the Rings. If you want to know whose land it is, then you need to look for the statues. Because the statues bring you in. The statues designate the landmarks. 
And so as they're moving around, they enter into this realm or that realm. And you can tell because sometimes there are statues standing up made in the image of the Lord over them. And you know what God has done? He said, I am going to claim authority over the lands of all of the earth. And I'm going to place my image bearers over all of them made in my image so that everywhere their feet touch, people know this is God's. Do you realize that's what we were supposed to do, people? We are supposed to be the living statues representing the authority of the king over every realm we touch. We believe in the sovereignty of God, but not just academically. Do you understand how sovereignty attaches itself to this point? It means there's no mistake ever in where God sent you because in that place God needed his ambassador. And so he sent you, made in his image, to stand there and say, this land belongs to the king. I may not like being here right now, but for as long as I'm here right now, this land is the king's. And how would the king act? Watch me. That's what human beings are supposed to be. Image isn't just looking in a mirror. Image is being an ambassador and a delegate. Image is being a living representation of the authority of the king over this realm, this place, that class, this peer group, that job, this neighborhood, this church building. We're here, and therefore the image of the king resides in this domain. It's his. So what belongs to God. First, we do. This has significant, very significant implications. And in a week, you're going to get a document from us as the elders. We're, we're crafting it right now that responds to some counterclaims made in our culture today about those made in the image of God. It's a strong stance on why our church is pro-life because we believe that little babies from the moment of their beginning of their existence are made as image bearers and are made in the image of God and therefore have dignity. It says that those to the end of their days never lose that image and therefore have dignity. It says that those, no matter their skin color or our preference or their history, have dignity. And so human dignity is built in the very fabric of who we are. It also means that when people join together in marriage, which God has said is a picture of his relationship with the earth, that marriage also belongs to God. And so we're going to have in that document a statement of where we stand with regard to God's glory and the gospel in the picture of marriage. And it touches gender because God has said from the very beginning that he's made them male and female. We don't believe that in that creation or in his revelation of what he's done that he's made mistakes and we don't believe that it needs to be fine-tuned. So we're going to put that document out for you. It's going to be one of the things you're going to vote on because we want to wet it to our constitution. We want to wet it to what it means to be a member here at the church. It's because of this, guys. It's not because we're just trying to be counterculture. It's not because we're trying to pick fights. It's because the world is pushing back and saying, this doesn't belong to God. And we're saying, hold on. It does. Marriage belongs to him. We, in all fabrics of our identity, belong to him. How we treat each other, who we protect, that shows whether or not God is in charge. What doesn't belong to Caesar, ultimately, Everything doesn't belong to Caesar. This is why the question is ambiguous. 
Because on one hand, it seems like what he's saying is, don't pay taxes, because Caesar owns nothing. But that doesn't feel like that's the fullest way of saying it, right? Because that was Jesus' answer. He would have just said, give God what's God's. But he asks the second question, what does belong to Caesar? And you can't ask that question, right? In light of the way we just answered the first one, you can't answer that question by asking what doesn't belong to God because we already recognize nothing doesn't belong to God. So in what sense do things belong to Caesar? Or the way maybe we could ask it is this, not what doesn't belong to God, but what has been entrusted by God to Caesar like a master to his servant? That feels like a contextual question given the parable of the tenants. But it also feels like the way that Paul, looking back on this question, really having to ask a question, not of a godly representative government, but of a dictatorial, tyrannical, authoritarian government like Rome that could say to you, hey, I want your coat. Give it to me. Hey, this is too heavy. You got to walk a mile with me. Hey, I don't like what you did. Wow. You realize what Jesus said? Give him the coat off your back. Go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. He's talking about Rome. Because those are Roman laws. A Roman soldier could force you, could hit you, could strip you. And Jesus said, defer and then defer again. Submit and submit again. That's those are Jesus' words in light of Roman law. So let's just remember that when this is coming, when Paul's talking about this, looking back on Jesus' words, and he's trying to give this a little bit more kind of, you know, like depth, detail, scope. He's not talking about like 21st century democratic America, the Republic of the United States of America. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about what some of us may fear is going to happen to our country. He's talking about like 1984 kind of stuff. And he says this in that context. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. (laughs) In a representative government, then, I feel like that statement gives us an asterisk to pause and ask some questions. But I'm just reading Romans, so let's move on. Would you... Have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must... Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For here it comes. Because of this, you also pay taxes. There's Paul. 
Paul, looking back, knowing how Jesus handled this question, does answer the question for us. So if you're wondering, does Jesus give you permission not to pay taxes according to not just this one inspired text, but sort of the whole weight of collective effort in scripture to communicate God's word to us, you should pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. And then more so, he says, not just the taxes, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I have no idea what you're thinking right now. Let me say two things. We do live in a representative type of government and not a tyrannical one. It's got tyrannical tenets to it, to be sure. Popularity is the main enemy right now. Uh, Losing some freedoms. Nothing like what Rome would do. But it's moving potentially. We're certainly less and less Christian. Christianity is certainly far less and less popular. In fact, things that we would have assumed as values in the United States because of, you know, sort of centuries of Christian influence, those are being not just eroded, those are being vilified. And we have a representative government. And where God wants us to move the government to the point that it can do good again and reward good, rather than to do evil and reward evil, I I, I think that we can not necessarily say it arrives from Mark 12 or it arrives from Romans 13, but I think we can say that we can participate in a system that allows us to be represented in the government. Voting is a way. Actively being involved, not just on national things, but on local things, it's a way. But I fear that sometimes we spend so much time talking about those kind of implied or inferred associations that we miss some of the heart of what's here. We are commanded to submission. We are commanded to respect. We are commanded to honor. We are commanded, to use Jesus' words, to give Caesar what God as the master has delegated to his servants and his ministers, to use the language from Romans 13. And I will say that to the extent that we so embrace our participation in something that we absolutely disobey God, I can't say that we're doing God's will in government. He's been very, very clear on the things that we're to do. And we have an option for how to change what the government does. But in the process of trying to change what the government does, we can't disobey God. I think that makes sense, doesn't it? What it also does like most of the times when we're really confronted with God, it doesn't give us a rule that's so easy to follow that we don't need God. Instead, where it leaves us is a state of, wow, this is a hard one. And I hear you, Lord. I hear you speaking through Mark's words. I hear you speaking through Paul's words. And I hear you speaking right now as we are under your word. And so I want to be very aware where I'm erring. If I've become a citizen who's given to a lack of submission, to a lack of honor, to a lack of respect, to the point that I'm not giving what Caesar really has been delegated and granted, then I can't say that I'm following God. I got to be careful. 
But to the extent that I see a government that is moving away from what Paul says is doing good to get approval, but instead doing evil and having that approved where we have power, Spider-Man might have been right. Those who have the ability to do good ought to do it. And so where we can be engaged and help bring change, let's do that. Brad and I were celebrating just a little bit ago when we were kind of talking through some of this stuff. The way that God used one of his sons is sitting right behind him till a little bit ago. Apparently they didn't like the sermon, so they both left. I'm not sure exactly what's going on. But Joseph was down in Columbus a while back. And given the Supreme Court's decisions, the work that he did a while ago now holds some weight because he helped to write the heartbeat bill that has sway in Ohio. Great example of a guy who was working locally, doing some things, and in the process of being faithful, had the opportunity to do something that made a pretty big difference. We never know exactly what it's going to be like for us to engage as citizens who give all of our allegiance to God because everything belongs to God, but also respect the fact that he's put us into a broken system, but it's still one that's kind of working and doing what God wants. There's a lot of evil still being restrained in our country, and we need to support that. We need to applaud it. There's a lot of things that really ought not to happen that, you know, should take place. So guys, we should probably not argue too much when we get pulled over. You're breaking the law. God's using that police officer in order to be able to help enforce and keep other people on the road safe. We should try not to break laws when we don't have any need to break laws. If you ever see the need to break laws, I'm not sure. Let's have another conversation about that. There's some obvious things here, right? End point is this. In light of everything that Jesus says, when I want to be done, I want to end up where everybody else ends. Because verse 17 doesn't end with, end to God, the things that are God, but it ends with this. And they marveled at him. That's where this should leave us. Just like any time we're closing the word, we should be able to walk away and say, God, what you've revealed to me, it's freeing and it's challenging. And I marvel at you. In terms of where we're going, this isn't going to be the last test that they throw at Jesus. This was one group. Next week, the kids are going to be in the service with us. So I thought it wise. Usually we try to read the Bible just straight through as it comes. But in light of the fact that we've got all of our kids in, I thought we'll skip this, the question about one woman who marries seven men and all of them die, and then the question of who she's married to at the end of days. We'll pause, and we're going to come back to that one in a week. So this will be the one time next week we're going to take Scripture a little out of order, and we're going to let somebody come and ask Jesus what's the most important commandment, because I thought that'll work for the kids a little bit better. In light of that, though, we are going to be in this this press this this movement where they're just trying to get and trap jesus and we're going to see jesus do a pretty good job of one avoiding their traps while still walking to the cross because that's why he came and in all that that's enough for me to marvel at jesus too so let's pray father we we do end where even your enemies ended even in something as obscure and a little ambiguous as what it means to give to one of your servants what belongs to you but what you've delegated and what that looks like. 
Father, I know that we have questions and I pray that we would talk about them prayerfully. I know that we have burdens and passions and I pray that we would enjoy for the process of trusting you while we care about the things that we think you care about. Father, I pray for us as elders as we write this document. We try to put out a position paper that we haven't really articulated before. Father, I pray for all of us, mostly though, that we would recognize your image on all of us. And so we give you this week. We lay it before you and say, I want to give God everything he already owns. Our weeks are yours. Our thoughts are yours. Our online activity is yours. Our diligence at school and at work are yours. The way that we speak about people when we're with them and the way we speak about people when we're not with them, all of it belongs to you. Because there's nowhere we can go this week that you won't be there. So I pray, Lord, may we continue to marvel at you more and more, especially as we continue in these passages together. In Jesus' name, amen.